This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Bonitasaura. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a very pretty dinosaur. And a bunch of dinosaur news. And we also would like to thank some of our patrons who have been supporting us already. And this week we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Jeremy, Scully, Avery, Crispy, and Cody. And Crispy and Cody both separately just joined since last week. So thank you both very much. Yeah, thank you, everybody. We also have a post that is now on our website, I Know Dino, from our listener Maya, who worked at the Fernbank Museum over the summer and wrote us a nice post about what the Fernbank Museum is all about and what you can see there and all that kind of stuff. So if you're in Atlanta or are interested in what the Fernbank Museum, which is in Atlanta, is like, then check out that post. Jumping into the news, we have two more new dinosaurs. They're all coming in pairs lately, and we're going to have at least two more again next week. Yes. That came out really recently. <laughs> it's so hard to keep it's up with It's that time of year. Yeah, we had a lull there where we didn't talk about any new dinosaurs for a month or two, and now it's just like nonstop, double duty dinosaurs all the time. Almost gearing up for SVP. It kind of feels that way. Although I think they probably would have published those things earlier. I don't know. I was starting to think that they were waiting until SVP to make announcements, but... I don't know. Anyway, this first one is by Andrew T. McDonald and Douglas Wolf. And Andrew McDonald is from the Western Science Center. It appears that he is their new paleontologist that Brittany was referring to when we visited that museum. She did hint at some of the work he was doing. Yes. And this one was published in Pure J, so it's open access and you can see it. So what they described was three new notosaurid specimens and notosaurids, again, are the ankylosaurs without the clubs on their tails, but still have all the cool armor. And all three of these notosaurs and specimens belong to the same species. So they described one species, but it's comprised of three individuals. And its name is really cool. It's Invictarx zephyri. And Invictarx comes from Invictus, they say because it's invincible and unconquerable. <laughs> nice. And arcs for fortress. So it's like a super fortress. And Kylosaurs always get those kind of names. They have some really good ones, yeah. 
And yeah, ankylosaurs are very tough, so it kind of makes sense. And then Zephyri is from Zephyrus, which means west wind. And they said that it's in reference to the blustery conditions that prevail among the outcrops where the specimens were discovered. I think it might also be because they work at the Western Science Center. Nah. <laughs> They're trying to squeeze in Western somehow. A bit of both. Yeah, but they didn't write that in the paper. Unfortunately, amongst the three specimens, they did not find a head. What they did find was pieces of a rib and osteoderms most recently, and then they referred two specimens that are in the Natural History Museum of Utah. Those are the other two. So one was one that they just found, the Western Science Center found, and then two that had been previously found in the Southern Museum. And those two that are referred also include several vertebrae, some partial limb bones, and more pieces of ribs and osteoderms. So kind of filled out the picture a little bit better. The main thing that they used to define it as a new species was the osteoderms. And they say that they're relatively smooth osteoderms without neurovascular grooves and that it likely had a pelvic shield. And then there are a couple characteristics that made them think that it was probably a notosaurid and not an ankylosaurid. And that's that the osteoderms are relatively thick and flat or even slightly concave, which is something that I guess you see in notosaurids more than ankylosaurs, which is something that I didn't know about, but is pretty interesting. And I guess that's useful because usually they base new ankylosaurs on changes in their skull morphology. So if there are horns or something else about their skull that's a little bit different, then they'll name a new species. But since they didn't find the skull, it's good that they have these osteoderms to work with. I think that is also why the two that were discovered in Utah, or by the Utah Museum, they hadn't previously named a new species because they didn't have the skull, and that's really what you want to have most of the time when you're naming ankylosaurs. So they didn't say exactly where they found it, but they said it was in northwest New Mexico, which the area they're talking about is between Albuquerque and the Four Corners, so like really far northwest, and it's also kind of near the Navajo Nation. Stratigraphically, it was found in the Allison member of the Upper Cretaceous Menifee Formation, which is something I had never heard of. It's a mouthful. Yeah. So I guess the Menifee Formation, this is the first identifiable dinosaur from the formation, which is probably why I haven't heard of it before. And the formation, they think, is from the late Cretaceous from about 84 to 78 million years ago. And then fortunately, near this in Victarchs, they found some ammonites, which are known from about 78 million years ago. That's We've talked about that before, how a lot of times you can find these more quickly evolving invertebrates. And if you can identify them with the fossil of a vertebrate like a dinosaur, then you can have a pretty good idea about what time it was around. Good old ammonites. <laughs> they describe in Victarchs as most similar to Glyptodontopelta, Mimus from the Maastrichtian of New Mexico, and Glyptodontopelta is about 10 million years more recent than in Victarchs, so they don't think that they're really the same species. That would be a really long time for one species to be around. And Glyptodontopelta is also one of the latest known notosaurids because it was around just a couple million years before the Cretaceous extinction. So Invictarchs probably isn't a synonym, but it kind of does a good job of filling in a little bit more of these late Cretaceous notosaurids in North America. So that's kind of neat. 
They said that in the formation, they also found three different turtles, or at least other people have found over the years, <laughs> a Neosuchian, which would be something sort of like a crocodile, sort of, and hadrosaurid, ceratopsid, and theropod dinosaurs. And they said that the dinosaurs, quote, will be described in a series of forthcoming publications. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. I'm not sure if all of those will be described, like the turtles and stuff like that, or if, you know, maybe a hadrosaurid was unidentifiable, but there's a ceratopsid that they found that they'll... So we'll have to see how many papers they're going to actually publish. Because this was the first identifiable one. Yeah. So I'm not sure if like those three other types of dinosaurs are identifiable or not. So tangentially related, the Utah Friends of Paleontology recently posted a PDF of their Dinosaurs of Utah, which is 115 plus species documented so far. Although Jim Kirkwood, tweeted, well, this will probably be out of date soon and they'll have to update. But (laughs) it's pretty interesting because Morris information, part of it is in Utah. Yeah, I think you might have published that a year or two ago. It's been updated. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because usually people do it once and then others will maybe build on it, maybe not. And it's really hard to keep up to date. It's nice that he's updating it. Yeah, and they do have a mention of the Navajo sandstone. Cool. That might be what this is. I'm not sure, though, because I don't think it was actually in Navajo Nation. So oh, I'm not I sure. See. Up next, we've got another new dinosaur. This next one was published in the Geology of the Intermountain West, which is an open access journal. Pretty new. I think this is like the fifth time they've published it. It's basically all about stuff in Utah. And it was written by Kenneth Carpenter and Peter Galton, who are both pretty big names in paleontology. Mm -hmm. What they did was basically a review of ornithischians from the Morrison Formation, which includes Dinosaur National Monument. Oh, that's a lot. Yes, there are a lot of dinosaurs in there. But they said only about 15% of the dinosaurs in there are ornithischian. So that's a much smaller group. True. There's a bunch of sauropods and... Is that where that bone bed for the Allosaurus is? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely Allosaurus in the mix along with some other theropods. So I'm going to talk specifically about two of the Ornithischians that they talked about in their paper. And in this case, both of the ones I'm talking about are bipedal. They have pretty short arms and they were probably herbivorous. So kind of a typical Jurassic sort of Ornithischian, what you might think of. Not like a really fancy one where they start getting you know, ceratopsians and all sorts of crazy evolution. These are a little more general dinosaur body plans. And if you're not familiar, the Morrison Formation is from the late Jurassic, and it covers a lot of the central U.S. It's a really huge formation. It also covers a really broad geological time scale of about 10 million years from about 156 to 147 million years ago. So it's both large in area and time. So a lot of the species did not coexist within that formation because like we often say a kind of ballpark for how long a species might last is about two million years so if you have a 10 million year times period you've got different dinosaurs living in the beginning of the morrison formation versus the end so piecing it together can be a little bit complicated during this article they synonymized a couple of ornithischians and they also split out a new species (laughs) so (laughs) So they're splitters well no because they synonymized some too so they also lumped it's both yeah They cannot be easily defined by being lumpers or splitters. (laughs) (laughs) And what they did was kind of interesting. So, yeah, really, they were just trying to bring some consistency to what makes a unique genus or species so that we're judging them all based on the same thing. It's 
It's a similar thing with Emmanuel Schopp and his bringing back Brontosaurus because it had different enough characteristics relative to the way we compared other sauropods, and he wanted to compare all sauropods evenly. Same sort of thing happening here with ornithischians. And I've heard people say that we really need to do this with hadrosaurs because they're a little bit messy right now. Oh yeah, so many. Yeah. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Dryosaurus elderae. That's the new dinosaur that they named, and they named it in honor of Anne Schaffer Elder, who worked with Carpenter at the Carnegie Quarry and Dinosaur National Monument, and Dryosaurus was previously named. So this is just another species within the genus of Dryosaurus. Usually there's only one species within a genus in dinosaurs, but I think the reason they made this another species is because way back in the 1800s, people were already kind of doing that with some of these genera adding multiple species, so there's sort of a framework for what's different enough to be a species versus a genus within Ornithischia, so I think that's what they were trying to stick to. So they said, Dryosaurus elderae is proposed for the Dryosaurus specimens from Dinosaur National Monument that are characterized by elongate cervical vertebrae and a long low ilium, among other features. It's interesting because the other Dryosaurus is also from Dinosaur National Monument, but it doesn't have the same type of vertebrae and then also this feature in the hips, so they think it's different enough to warrant its own species. Obviously not that different because they don't want to call it its own genus. And they didn't specify its size, but from previous Dryosaurus descriptions, I'm just spitballing that it's roughly 3 meters or 10 feet long and about 90 kilograms or 200 pounds. So what we would usually consider sort of a medium-sized dinosaur, I would say. So that's a new one. The other dinosaur that I'm going to talk about is one that they synonymized, the lumping versus the splitting, and this one's Nanosaurus agilis, which as they put it is the senior name <laughs> for Drinker Nistai, Othnealsaurus consors, and Othnelia rex. That's a lot of different names. Yeah, so I, I can kind of explain where it all came from. Hopefully it's not too convoluted. Well, based on those names at Bone Wars? Yeah, pretty much. Well, the Bone Wars primarily took place in the Morrison Formation, so it makes sense that there would be a lot of names coming out of there. And in this case, Nanosaurus Agilis was named back in 1877 by O.C. Marsh of Bone Wars fame from about half of a jaw and the top of the ilium, which is part of a hip. So it's a pretty incomplete dinosaur fossil, but it was one of the earliest named Ornithischians, so... That's why it's the senior name for some of these other ones. Then Othnealsaurus was basically named a year later from a much more complete specimen, but Carpenter and Galton are now saying that they're the same. So if you really compare those two little pieces from the earlier one, it's like, okay, those fit perfectly with the later one. So even though that one's more complete, by naming convention, you stick with the earlier name. So it's the senior synonym. And then on top of that, there were some other names that they said were synonymous. So Galton actually named Othnelia rex from Nanosaurus rex in 1977. And that's because he considered Nanosaurus rex to be different enough from Nanosaurus agilis to require a new genus. But now he's changed his mind? Yes. So that was 41 years ago. And obviously the science on dinosaurs has changed quite a bit. So yeah, he's now rescinding that name and switching back to just Nanosaurus agilis, which is kind of interesting because they were previously splitting some of them out at the genus level, and now they're even all at the same species level. 
Just shows you how much science changes over the years. Yeah, it definitely does. And if you're wondering, Nanosaurus is about two meters or seven feet long, and it weighs under 10 kilograms or 22 pounds, so a lot smaller than Dryosaurus. Their summary for the whole article, too, is essentially that we've got 140 years of Morrison formation research, and we're up to six valid species within four genera. Hmm. So really not a ton of ornithischians in there. Nope. And the other, obviously, there's two different types of Dryosaurus. There's also two types of Camptosaurus in the formation. And we'll have more new dinosaurs again next week because <laughs> there are so many of them. It's, there's, yeah, pretty much every week. <laughs> I think one of them is going to be an update on an Alvarosaurid and potentially what they use their claws for. Oh. A little hint. A little teaser there. I haven't really read it yet, so I'm not sure if I want to <laughs> announce that it's Don't what commit. they said. Yeah, because it, it could just be a, an erroneous headline. In other news, visitors to Crystal Palace Park got to get close to the dinosaurs last weekend as part of this Heritage Open Days. And groups of 20 people got free 30-minute visits and learned what the Victorians got wrong and right about the 162-year-old sculptures. Yeah, the list of wrong is a lot longer than the list of right. Sure. Unfortunately. But that's, it was all early days for studying dinosaurs, so it makes sense. I think they got the weights about right, though. Mm. I think that was one of the things they got right, which is kind of cool. We talked about one of those, like the all the different estimates for one of the sauropod weights. Mm -hmm. And some of the earliest ones were like <laughs> pretty close. And then they kind of go all over the place since then. Yeah, I didn't realize because we haven't been to Crystal Palace Park that you can't get that close to the dinosaurs except for these special occasions. Oh, okay. That is interesting. I knew they were kind of behind fences and a little bit of water because they're sort of on islands. Yeah. And you can't really get on the islands or you're not supposed to at least, except for they were saying like teenagers would and like vandalize stuff and things, but maybe not so much anymore. Yeah. The article advertising it actually said you can get up close and touch the dinosaurs and then in uh, asterisk at the bottom, you can't actually touch the dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know why that was the headline. Weird. <laughs> in Drumheller, Alberta, Canada, three of their 30 dinosaur statues, the ones they have all over the city, they were recently damaged. Two of them can be fixed, turns out, but one of them, which is the Mailman T-Rex, it's painted red with white maple leaves. Maybe you oh, remember that. Okay. Yeah, we definitely saw it. It was hit by a van that swerved and then hit the sidewalk, and it Oof. can't be repaired. The other two dinosaurs are the Batman dino, which was in front of Shopper's Drug Mart. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah, that's a fun one. His arm and tail fell off, and a pink theropod near the co-op Argo fell over. The dinosaurs, they're made in the 60s with concrete and wire. They're informally known as cementosaurs. <laughs> they were made by Midsillen to be put in Prehistoric Park, and then Prehistoric Park closed in the 1980s, and the dinosaurs moved into town. Huh. So they have liability insurance coverage. There's going to be a fundraiser by Dino Arts to help maintain the dinosaurs and build new ones, but they just don't have enough money to fix the mailman T-Rex. Interesting. Yeah. I guess liability insurance is usually only good for a couple incidents a year. So if they all happened really rapid fire, yeah, <laughs> they might only have enough insurance for one or two of them. Also cool that they maintain these dinosaurs. Yeah, it is fun going around Drumholler and seeing all the different dinosaurs. I didn't realize they came from a park. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. We've got an origin story on the Chrome Dinosaur game since, you know, Chrome is celebrating its 10-year birthday, so it's got the T-Rex with the birthday hat, and that game is apparently only four years old. I thought it was older. 
But anyway, it's celebrating its fourth birthday. So Sebastian Gabriel, who's a Chrome designer, said that the game is, quote, a play on going back to the prehistoric ages before the existence of the ubiquitous Wi-Fi, according to the next web. Yeah. Because dinosaurs didn't have the internet. Right. (laughs) And the first designs of the dinosaur had the codename Project Bolin to refer to Mark Bolin, who's the singer of the band T-Rex, which is a band from the 1970s. Mm Mm-hmm. Apparently, 270 million games are played each month. That is a lot. Yeah. I think that's one of the many things that makes Chrome as a browser such a bloated mess. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say popular or <laughs> Maybe that else. too. But the amount of RAM that thing uses is out of control. Mm. Anyway, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> and last, on September 18th, the day before this episode airs, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom came out on DVD and Blu-ray, and Universal Pictures and Facebook launched this AR experience where you can get special stickers through the Facebook Messenger app. Hmm. So once you buy a copy of the movie, you get a card with a code, and then you use Facebook or the Messenger app on your phone, scan the code, you tap the screen, and you can place your own blue Velociraptor. You can also visit a store that's selling the movie. They're in 18 different countries and 17,000 locations in the U.S., including retail and grocery stores, and then scan a QR code to get an Indoraptor. Fancy. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. We're going to have to pre-order that. I didn't realize that it was coming out already. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can get it by the time it comes slash came out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. In the future past. Well, we might want to go to a store so we can get the Indoraptor. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you have to look for a special display. But I'm sure it stands out. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Bonitasaur, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602. So thanks. It was a titanosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Patagonia in Argentina. It was found in the Bajo de la Carpa Formation. The type species is Bonitasaura salgadoi. It was named in 2004 by Sebastian Apesteguia. The name refers to the quarry where it was found, La Bonita. So I guess it's not necessarily a pretty dinosaur, Garrett. I guess the quarry was pretty, so that was La Bonita. And now, since it's from there, it's the La Bonita dinosaur. But <laughs> the pretty lizard. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. The species name is in honor of Leonardo Salgado, an Argentine paleontologist who did a lot of research on sauropods. So that makes sense. They found a partial subadult, including a lower jaw with teeth, partial vertebrae, and limb bones. It was about thirty-three feet or ten meters long. Hmm. Though Bonitasaur may not have grown to be much larger, it would have been small for a titanosaur. Yeah, that's very small. Thirty-three feet for a sauropod. Mm-hmm. Bonitasaurus had features similar to diplodocids, a similar skull, long and low. They also had front limbs that were shorter than hind limbs and whiplash tails. <laughs> it was herbivorous and had peg-like front teeth, which it used to grab food and then cropped it with its beak that had a keratin sheath. And it had a short neck and high, robust neural spines on its back vertebrae, so it probably had strong muscle attachments. And because of this, it may have been a high browser and exerted its neck while eating. That's cool. Yeah, that's a good example of convergent evolution. You've got this late Cretaceous kind of sauropod, and it's starting to look like diplodocids from the Jurassic, basically. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. But then it's got still has some of the features of titanosaurs, too. Mm-hmm. And our fun fact is about Franz Nopcha, not pronounced Nopska the way we usually say it. Well, now we know. Oops. That could be a mini fun fact. <laughs> but he got into paleontology largely, if not entirely, because of his sister. Eliona. And there are different accounts. That's why I say, you know, it could have been entirely because of her. But when he was 18, either his sister found dinosaur bones or they found dinosaur bones together on their family estate in Transylvania, which is now Romania. Jealous. Yeah. I mean, I guess he had a pretty good childhood, this huge amount of land to explore and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find any other information about Eliona anywhere. So I don't, I guess she... Like most women prior to the 1900s probably didn't have a lot of career options. Or at least wasn't written about. Yeah. So I guess her brother was the only one that went off to school and did all the dinosaur research. But some other details about him that I found while fact-checking this is that he obviously went to study paleontology and made some of the earliest and most significant paleo art of the time. And he also became a leading expert on Albanian studies which was really surprising to me. There's a whole book about his Albanian contributions. Oh, yeah. He's got a wide range of interests. Yeah. So I couldn't, I was trying to figure out when he got into Albanian nationalism because he basically did, but I couldn't find it exactly. I did see some overlapping interests though. So after doing paleontology for a while, he started getting really interested in geology, particularly plate tectonics. 
And they said that he interacted with a lot of the local tribes in the Albanian mountains. So I'm thinking maybe he went into the Albanian mountains to do geologic research and then encountered these local tribes and then got really into Albanian stuff and became like an Albanian professor and wrote a whole bunch of books about Albanian history and became what he was known as one of the world's leading experts in Albanian studies at the time. So he's not from Albania. <laughs> not even really that close being from Romania, but yeah. Yeah, he had an interesting life. Definitely a really interesting guy. And I wish I could find out more about Ileona, but I guess her brother got all the credit. That we know of anyway. And that wraps up this episode of I Don't Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You have one more week to become our patron before our 200th episode, and we send all our patrons an audiobook of Top 10 Dinosaurs of 2014. So check that out at patreon.com slash I Thanks again, and until next time. Good